0: Uh, just looking at a few verses in the, the epistle there. Uh, but as I was reading through this passage, thinking about what I wanted to speak on, uh, just the Lord really started working in my heart, and I started thinking about what Paul is doing here. And, you know, when we look through history, there are a lot of impacting manifestos that have come out. Now, some may say, well, what's a manifesto? Basically, a manifesto is like your public declaration of a policy Or, you know, your aims, your goals, it's the, the declaration of your intentions, the motives, your views, you're gonna, you're gonna lay out. Sometimes in political times we get, here's our platform, this is what we're gonna stand on, this is what we're gonna run for. I don't hold political platforms and manifestos in the same because people tend to live by manifestos. Political parties don't hold to their platforms most of the time. But that's a whole nother topic we'll get into some other day. But there's a lot of impacting manifestos, whether for good or bad. When Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto and laid the groundwork for socialism, it was a declaration that that radically impacted Europe uh, in the early century and then changed the way way even now we, we see impacts of that even in our culture, even here today. You know, what we're going to hear about in the next political cycle when we deal with socialism and, you know, generations wanting a socialistic perspective here in America. And start contrast to the Declaration of Independence, which was a manifesto where we, we, we basically declared ourselves, you know, the independence from, from England and we're making those statements and here they are and lays it all out. They're, they're manifestos that were given. Even, it doesn't always have to be written down. Sometimes it's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. when he talks about the I Have a Dream speech. That was a manifesto. These were views, things, longings that he desired for and he wanted to see accomplished and it became that bedrock for the, the civil liberties uh, movement. And, and these manifestos, they, they happen through history and some are very impacting, some are not. But in Romans chapter one, as we look at these verses this morning, Paul, Paul's going to give a, a manifesto. It's short, it's brief, but it's going to be potent. He's going to, he's going to make basic two declarations in it. He's going to declare, this is who I am. He's going to say, this is who he is. And he's going to say, this is what he believes. When we look at this, these verses here, verses 14 through 17, Paul is basically, in a nutshell, and a little encapsulated, it's, it's really honestly what it is. It's his thesis statement. For those of you who've had to write big papers, you have to write your abstract or your thesis statement. It's his thesis statement for the rest of the book of Romans. He's going to give, in a nutshell, what he's going to talk about. But he lays it out and he says, this is who I am, and this is what I believe. And so as we look at these verses this morning, think of it in context of here is Paul, the apostle, the, the one who has, you know, murdered... Christians, but now has been saved as Saul. He murdered, he was converted through Jesus Christ, and now he has become the apostle out of due season. He is the one who is now working in such a way to be writing and laying theological groundwork and foundation for all of Christianity. Our, our foundation, our faith is rooted on the manifestos, the writings of Paul. And he's going to lay out very clearly here this is, this is who I am and this is what I believe. Starting in verse 13, though, he gives us a little bit of a background. He says, now, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, or I was, I was hindered, I wasn't able to, that I might have some fruit among you, even as among other Gentiles. Now, when Paul uses this phrase, I would not have you ignorant, he uses it three other times in the New Testament. He uses it in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, when he's going to talk about the gospel going to the Gentiles. It's an important phrase. He says, I don't want you to miss what I'm going to say. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, when he starts to talk about spiritual gifts in the church, he's like, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he's going to be talking about the second coming of Christ. He says, don't, don't miss this. So here, when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, he was, he was saying, hey, Romans, and now for us, I, I want you to hear this. This is important, what I'm about to declare to you. He says, I, "I wanted to come to you. I had this desire. I had desire to, to have spiritual fruit among you. He wanted to be there. he wasn 't with the Romans. he was writing to the Church of Rome at this point. he had not been to Rome yet. He had been thwarted by god 's plans and by other things that had happened in his life, but he had not been there and he looks to the Romans and he 's saying, I want." spiritual fruit among you. He wants to see them grow, but he also says, I want it among the, the others around you, the Gentiles that are around you as well. Paul, it's interesting, Paul was not content with his past fruit. Now, the, the idea of spiritual fruit, for if, you're, if you're listening maybe for the first time, it's not, we're not talking about Paul sprouting bananas or grapes or that's what he wanted. But the Bible talks about spiritual fruit being something that we are either, it's cultivated in our life by the Spirit, whether it's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, the fruits of the Spirit. Or it's often talked about as well, the, the seeing of somebody growing, discipling, helping them to mature, you see spiritual fruit in their life. And then it's also dealt with the third way, which Paul's dealing with here, is he wants to see as well, people get converted to Jesus Christ. He says, I am desirous to see people get saved. And he says, this is my desire. He says, I'm not not content on what I've had already. He's like, I want more. He has this unending quest for fruit. He wants more fruit. He doesn't want to just be settled and say, hey, back in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, I bore lots of fruit. He's looking and saying, now, I want to be bearing more fruit. I want to go to Rome and I want to make a difference. I want people to get saved. It's interesting that he expects a harvest. He says, when I'm coming there, when I get there, I'm expecting that there will be a harvest of fruit. I purpose to come to you that I might have some. He's not like, oh, I hope this might happen. He says, there's going to be a harvest. I want that harvest. I'm expecting that harvest. He believes that. That God is preparing the hearts of people to hear the gospel. He's committed to this. And so, because he's committed to the fact that he wants more fruit, he wants fruit in Rome, he wants to see a harvest of, of people that God is preparing for the gospel, he says, I want to go. And it's driving him crazy that he can't get there yet. He wants to be in Rome, but he says, The Lord has not allowed it. Some things have happened, but I'm coming. And so he he sets this up as the background to the statements he's going to make in the next few verses. His desire to go, his desire to see fruit, his desire to see people get saved, and he knows that there's a harvest waiting to be had, waiting to be gathered. It's interesting, he hasn't hasn't laid any foundation there. He just, he's going to go with the intention of, I'm going to share the gospel. This is what I'm going to be about. And so Paul takes his time and he's going to lay out some personal declarations he's going to say, this is who I am. Here's my manifesto of life. In a nutshell, Paul looks and he's going to give three statements that start with I am. And he's going to say, first of all, he's going to say, I am obligated. I am obligated to any person who needs the gospel. Verse 14, he says, I am debtor, both to the Greek, to the barbarian, both to the wise and the unwise. His obligation is not just because he's a bondservant like he talks about up in verse 1, but his obligation to these, these individuals is because there are those who need to hear the gospel. He, he looks, you remember 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I mean, that's, that's intense. May harm come to me. May I, may I be miserable if I am not about preaching the gospel proclaiming the truth. He talks about in that, in that passage, even he lays out, he says, there are times that I want to do it and I don't want to do it. There are times that it's, it's easy and there's times that it's not, but he's like, it doesn't matter. There's times that it's, you know, it's fashionable and there's times that it's really not perfect, but I need to do it. I need to be about, we need to be just like Paul about the gospel, looking and saying, we have an obligation. We must be compelled to to proclaim the truth of the gospel. I am a debtor. He owes it to them. I'm not looking, oh, I don't know anybody anything. Paul looks and says, that's not true. If you are a believer, he says, I am a believer. And because of my relationship with Christ, I owe it to these people to share the gospel. Do you ever, you ever think about all the different situations? I mean, when we look at the different things, Sharon and I were driving back from uh, Virginia one time and there was a car very similar to that and it just flipped over. And it's like, what do I do? Oh, I hope they're okay. No, there's an obligation that you feel if that you, you pull over and you're, you're gonna make sure, you're gonna check out to see if, are they okay? And then so in that case, it was the first thing I did was smell for gas, didn't smell gas, crawled into the car, helped the guy unhook the seatbelt and pulled him out. Okay, we do that. Why? Because I wanna make sure that the guy is safe. Not, not so he's sitting upside down. We want to we step in to that situation. We had a situation once where, I don't even remember if you remember, I was thinking about it last night. We were uh, over at a pool and the tuttles were with us. And was it, was it Grace? Grace all of a sudden was at the bottom of the pool in like eight feet deep of water, like trying to, and, and instantly like all the adults realized and everybody just felt a compulsion. It was we didn't look and go, well, Michael, Alicia, I hope you get your kid. You know, you know you're, you're, no. There was this compulsion, this obligation that said there is somebody drowning. We have to do something about it. So everybody's jumping in to to help her out of the pool and to make sure she's okay. When we look at the the people who are facing an eternal wrath of God, hell, as Paul's going to lay out, starting in verse 18 and following, he's going to start talking about the wrath of God. Do we look and go, hey, I hope you figure it out. I know you're drowning. I know you're, you're wallowing in God's wrath, but hope it works. No, we have an obligation because of our relationship, because of who we are. When someone is in danger, we were able, we were able to, and we're able to help them, we're automatically and immediately under obligation to help them, to save them. You and I have that obligation. He says, woe to me. Paul's obligation, notice it was not selective. He doesn't look and say only to a couple people. He says, I am a debtor both to the Greek and to the non Greek. To the, to the wise, to the, to the foolish, the unwise. It doesn't matter the race, it doesn't matter the nationality, it doesn't matter, matter the socioeconomical class, it doesn't matter the education and the educational sophistication of an individual. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if they have tattoos or not tattoos. It doesn't matter if they have piercings or not piercings. It doesn't matter if they're black, white, red, yellow, green, purple, blue. It doesn't matter. You and I have an obligation, because of what Christ has done, to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was not selective. He says, I must. I am a debtor to them to share the gospel. It all comes with the same need. All those individuals they come with the same need of forgiveness. God doesn't show partiality. God is willing to forgive any and all who come to him in repentance. And I should not be selective with who I share the gospel. I should be looking for those opportunities to share what God has given me. The the truth is, people are all sinners before a holy God, and that levels the ground. It doesn't matter intellectually, it levels the ground. We are all the same before the foot of the cross. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And so Paul looks and says, "I need to do that." I was just asked the other day um, by a, by a friend. They asked me about uh, would I would I be willing to sit down and talk and to interact with somebody who goes to a church of Satan, a church of Satan. I said, "Yeah, I would." And they're like, "What, really?" And then they said, so, "So would you be willing to sit and talk with somebody and have you know?" build a relationship with somebody who's, who's a part of the LGBT movement? Yeah. Yeah, I would. And, and they kept going down and they were asking all these different denominations of me. And they're like, well, why? I said, because if I believe truly in my heart of hearts what Paul is talking about, that if they do not get saved, if they do not accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ by faith, by grace alone, that their eternal damnation is hell and i look at that and say i don't care where am i what does that say about my spiritual state and if i truly believe that then i am obligated to talk with them to share with them to to encourage them to accept the free gift of salvation are you willing to interact with somebody who may look different who may act different who may talk differently Are you willing to do that? You know, we get excited. Paul says his second statement. He says, I am excited to proclaim the gospel. He doesn't say in verse 15, he doesn't say, woe is me. He says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Paul had this genuine eagerness to speak to people about the gospel. Some of you, if I ask you about vacation... There, 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 are, there are niches here. Some of you are complete beach people. I hate the beach. It's the sand. We've been through that before. I, but you will try to proselytize me into the millions of reasons why the beach is so wonderful. And some of you are like, don't give me the beach. Give me the mountains. And you're going to be like, let me tell you why. You just need to rent a cabin. You need to go up into the woods. And you have all these reasons why this is the way. Some of you are complete Disney people. And you're like, let me tell you all the reasons why you go to Disney. And you're going to tell me all that. Some of you are all about the cruise. And we all have our opinions. And it's interesting. I can get a lot of you going on what you think is. And you can try to convert me to what I think I ought to be doing with my family. And you're eager to talk about it and excited. And you have all your reasons. Am I that eager and that prepared to talk? And some of you know, I'm, a Dis- I'm, I'm in the Disney boat. I'm sorry if you don't like that, but deal with it. Um, am I as eager to talk to you about the gospel as I am about my Disney vacation? I need to be. I should be more. And Paul says, I am eager. I am ready. I want to share the gospel as much as is in me. I am ready to proclaim the gospel. Don't take that word preach and just say, oh, that's, that's Pastor Art, Pastor Tony, Pastor Wayne, Pastor Kim, Pastor Alan, Pastor Bill. That's their job. You see, it says just preach the gospel. It's just that. The word is to herald, to make known. It's to proclaim. You and I as believers are to be proclaiming, heralding as an ambassador of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you and I should be doing that. We should be eager to to do that. Our obligation should not be this joyless commitment, communic- commitment to an unpleasant task. Just, just talking with some of you in the last couple days. Some of you have had friends over in the, in the last week who've gotten saved. You've had the opportunity. And when I ask about it, smiles come across your face. Because there's joy in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Sure, there's moments where it's nerve-wracking. Sure, there's moments where it's intimidating. But you and I can find that joy and that eagerness that we should, we should be willing to share. it. Our obligation shouldn't be that joyous commitment. For Paul, he looked and said, I have but one value in life. I am going to do the work of God. I'm going to do it. He says, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to these individuals. Not just to come to church, but he said, "I am about sharing. I am about doing this ministry uh, before before God." He he gives another statement. He says, "I'm not embarrassed by the gospel," or he says, "I'm not." We're, we're familiar with, "I am not ashamed," for I am not ashamed. And this is the one he puts a negative with. He says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel of of Christ." Now the question may come, why did why did Paul have to write, "I'm not ashamed"? There's some commentators speculate saying, well, Paul didn't want to go to Rome. He was nervous and ashamed. People were saying he was ashamed to go to Rome because Rome was this cultural thriving metropolis and Paul was just this backwoods Jerusalem guy who he was ashamed to come there and try and share his religion. Or that Paul was maybe uh, really concerned about the, the intellectual sophistication of Rome and that his religion was about uh, this this carpenter who grew up and was murdered, killed by the Romans. And that he's to be their savior. And so Paul was really ashamed about going to Rome. And so he has to tell himself, I'm not ashamed. That doesn't mesh with Paul's life, does it? Here's a guy who no matter where he went, he boldly proclaimed the gospel. He was praying even at times in Ephesians. He says, boldly pray for me that I may boldly make known the mystery of the gospel. Sure, there were times where he didn't feel bold, but there, this is a guy who's been shipwrecked. He stands before kings. He's been beaten. He's been jailed. He's been, you know, through, through the ring or bitten by snakes. You name it, this guy's had this happen. And you don't see him cowering away abashed and saying, oh no, it's the gospel, I can't. He says, no, I, I am not. So that's why it's actually some people interpret it as the idea of I am proud of the gospel. But, but what he's saying here is, I'm not going to be embarrassed by this. This is what I am about. This is my life. The gospel has radically changed me, so I need to be about proclaiming and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continually demonstrates his unashamed boldness to share the gospel. It's a, there's interesting, we were given, with Zach's baseball team, we were given these little challenge tokens, and I've just purposely over the last day or so just said this is going to be you know around in my pocket because there's a statement on it by Babe Ruth. It says this um, on the other side. There it is. Never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. And that, you know, Babe Ruth lived by that. He's like, I'm not going to be afraid of striking out, of failing. So it could stifle. It It could hinder you. And I started thinking about that in light of the gospel. How many times do I not share the gospel because I'm fearful of failing? I'm fearful of rejection. And so then I don't. I can't let you can't let the fear of shame, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure. We don't fail when we share the gospel. It's not us who converts. We'll talk about that in a second here. We are failures when we don't share. We need to be sharing. And so it's just a, a reminder for me to say, okay, if I if I would think that in baseball, never let the fear of striking out keep me from playing the game, how much more for the gospel. Don't let the fear of rejection, don't let the fear of not saying exactly the right thing keep you from sharing your faith. Paul says, I'm going, I'm going to understand that I am, he understands he's been entrusted with the gospel. He understands that this is the most transforming truth that the world has been given. You and I have been trusted with this. He makes this declaration of this is who I am. I am obligated. There's a, there's a moment in the show, if you've seen The Greatest Showman, there's a moment where all the characters, Barnum's, Barnum's group in the, in the movie, they, they come to this point where they, they sing the song, This Is Me, and they come to this understanding that, you know what? The culture, the world, they're not going to accept that I'm different. They're not going to accept that I have an oddity and, and all of these different things for the circus acts. And they just come to the ownership of saying, they're going to be who they're going to be, and we need to be who we're going to be. You know, I think at times we as Christians, we need to come to that point and say, wait a second. I am a peculiar person. It doesn't make me bad. It doesn't make me weird. I am about the gospel. We need to be about the gospel and we need to own that. Paul owned it. He said, this is me. I am a debtor to the Greek, to the barbarian. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am going to declare no matter where I'm at, no matter who it is, I need to be doing this. And so we look and we say, wait, do I act like that? Now I think Paul's understanding of the gospel helps him because he talks about who he is and he's going to talk about what he believes and sometimes I think we have this, this I, I've had the shallow view of the gospel. That it's just, hey, a person needs to be forgiven of sins. But what does, what does the gospel entail? What is encapsulated in it? And, and Paul starts to, to flesh it out just in a small way. So let's look at not only what does Paul say that I am, who does he say is, but what does, what does he believe? Paul is going to talk about the gospel is the saving power of God. Notice in verse 15, he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel of Christ for this gospel. And now he's going to start talking about what this gospel of Jesus Christ is for the gospel is the power of God. He clearly lays out that this is the power of God. And he's going to talk about more the gospel. It's a dynamic message. It, It carries dynamic power. It's not my words that are persuasive. Paul talks about not with the persuasive and cunning words of wisdom. I'm coming to you with the word of God. It is God's word that does not return void. And as we go with the gospel, it is the power of God going with us. When the gospel is proclaimed, God is working. He's reaching into the hearts as you are sharing the gospel, as you are sharing those verses, as you are sharing those nuggets of truth. God is using that and the Holy Spirit is beginning to convict and persuade and draw people to him. But if we don't say anything, how is God working? He's chosen you and I as ambassadors, as ones who represent him and his message to go out and to be proclaiming. The gospel carries the power of our our omnipotent God. I and of myself am very uh, impotent. I'm, I'm powerless when it comes to sharing. But when I share the message of God... The power of God is through me. He is omnipotent. He is strengthful. He talks about salvation. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is not a lifeless message. We can't, it's not just, hey, I'm trying to get people to really like my term paper. Or I'm making a persuasive argument for a speech class, and I hope everybody in class votes yes, they liked it, and, you know, and they believe me. The gospel is radical. It is a message that needs to be responded to by everybody. And it's, it, it allows for this vibrant, life-changing experience to be changed from dark to light, to be changed from being sinful and condemned to being righteous and being able to be, uh, have that right standing before God. D.L. Moody said it this way. He said, the, the, the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the door and get out of the way. How true. It is, it, is, it is ready to be unleashed. Paul understood that. That's why he says, I want to go to Rome. I want fruit there because God's preparing hearts. I want to see people get saved. But all too often we're like, oh, it's such a hard place in America anymore. I don't know if the gospel can really penetrate it. The gospel can really make a difference. So I don't, I don't say a lot. No, we need to be about sharing The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power. The power, not only just the the power of God, but he says it's an effective operation of God's power. In other words, what it's meant to do, it does. It's effective. It has a plan. It has a direction. It's the effective power that leads to salvation. The gospel doesn't say isn't the saving agent. God is the saving agent in salvation. But the gospel leads people to, to salvation. You look at it, salvation is carried out how? Through the power of God. He says, for it is the power of God to what? Unto salvation, unto the changing of a person's life and their, their spiritual sense. Salvation is more than just the forgiveness of sins. He says it's the power of God and salvation, everyone that believes. He's gonna say it's not just the person gets saved. He lays it out. Salvation includes here the word that's used and how Paul is using it and how he uses it in the book. As he unfolds, remember, this is his thesis statement. He's going to unfold it over the next eight chapters of salvation. He's going to talk about the full scope of deliverance of sin. He's going to talk about justification, the deliverance, the declaration of deliverance from the penalty of sin. When a person gets saved, when they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they repent of their sins, they wholly, solely trust in Jesus Christ as the only way for forgiveness They are delivered from the penalty of sin. Paul uses that and he says the person saved. He also talks about that salvation is sanctification, that is the growth process. It's deliverance from the power of sin. We are not under, if you are saved, you have the ability to say no, to reject sin, to have victory over the sinful temptations and struggles in your life. We can grow in our salvation. And so it is sanctification. It's that that growth process. Paul is talking about both of those. He's talking about glorification, the deliverance from that, that presence of sin. One day, if you are saved, you will have the privilege because of the righteousness of God, because of Christ's robes of righteousness being placed upon you. If you are saved, you will have the ability and opportunity to enter into a holy heaven where there will one day be no presence of sin where there will be nothing there that is reminding us or or bringing sin to our life. The presence of sin is absolutely gone. And so we will be delivered from the presence. So when Paul talks about it is the power of God unto salvation, it is the authority, the power of God to be declared righteous, to live righteously, to experience the righteousness of God one day in heaven. And so it's not just merely the forgiveness of sins. The gospel entails so much more. So that means if you've been saved, you should still be living for the gospel and thinking about the gospel, not just in light of I need to share the gospel, but I need to be living in light of my life and my sanctification. Am I growing more like Christ? Am I growing in my salvation? Am I growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I look for that blessed hope that one day when I will be free from the penalty and the bondage of sin and that I will be in heaven with God forever? So Paul talks more about that. The gospel is, something, is not something that people can do for themselves. It is the power of God unto salvation. The agent of power, the agent of change is not you. It's not me. The agent of change, the agent of power, is God. It is the power of God unto salvation. So Paul uses this. It doesn't. This does not negate your uh, free will. Okay, you can't do it in your own strength. You're not able to do it on your own. You can't muster up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Salvation doesn't work that way. Because, as Paul says, it's not of me. It's not so I can boast. I can't do enough. If I could do enough, why did Christ have to die? It it makes no sense. I have to trust completely and fully in God to be the one who changes me. It doesn't negate your free will. God desires your salvation, but he's not going to force himself upon you. He's the agent of power. Uh, There it is. He He doesn't force himself upon people against their will. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Very clearly laid out in Scripture, God desires for you if you are here and you are not saved. He desires, He longs, His heart aches for you to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But He will not force you. He will not put you under His thumb and say you're going to do it until He gives you and has offered you the free gift of salvation that you can have. However, to experience this powerful and effective effect of the gospel, it says you must believe. Notice what it says in the verse. For it is the power of God unto salvation, not to everybody, not to all of the world, but to everyone. It is effective to those who believe. The, go- the gospel is sufficient for everybody, but it is efficient, it is effective only to those who believe. Therefore, it is not something you can do, but the gospel is something that must be responded to in faith. You must, by faith, personally trust in Jesus Christ. And as we're sharing the gospel, we need to be reminding people that I I can't make you do this. It is a genuine response of you in faith to God. You have to respond uh, in, in that way. It was, it's interesting, uh, Jim Elliott wrote, and it's almost like a little manifesto when I was thinking about it, but he said, Father, make me a crisis, man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a, be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. I think there's, a, there's an important part here that we in our American Christianity need to, need to come to grips with. When I'm sharing the gospel, I do need to be sensitive and come to the point where I'm helping a person come to a point of decision. It's not backing them into a corner. But at the same time, when you work through the gospel and you get to this point where, you know, if you're not saved, you know, there's, there's wrath, there's hell. To ask, doesn't that concern you? To bring them to a point and say, what, what do you want to do about that? That's not evil, just to, oh, well, I shared a little bit and I just leave it out there. But we need to help people come to understand that it is a response of faith, that they need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've heard and you've never made that personal decision to respond in faith to Jesus Christ, I implore you, don't, don't put it off. Look and say, I need Jesus Christ. I need to get saved. He, he goes on, Paul goes on, he says, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, which is vastly distinct from human righteousness. Notice in verse 17, he says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The The righteousness of God here. What, what's going on? Some of us ask, you know, commentators go back and forth. Is it talking about just an attribute of God, that God is just righteous? And that's what it's talking about. Is it talking about this is the, the declaration of righteousness to a person who responds? that that God is making a person righteous? Or is it their ultimate standing before God because of of their response of faith uh, to the gospel? And as I look back and I'm like, okay, really, does it make a difference? But it does in some ways. Why is it important we understand the righteousness of God? Back up for a second and understand the context of the gospel. When you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ... There is a relationship that God had with man. Man broke that relationship. There is a response that Jesus Christ came and there is a response that man must make in regard to it. Look, Look at how it's unfolded when we think about the gospel. God created us. He created you. He created me to have fellowship with him. We go all the way back to Genesis. That was his desire with humanity. But Adam steps in and blows it and he enters into sin and everyone after him, has sinned, and that fellowship with the holy God has been severed. And the rest of Scripture is is unfolding for us. How is God restoring humanity? How is God bringing back the opportunity for you and I to have this fellowship restored with God? And as he unfolds it through Scripture, we realize that we are all now sinners who are unable to stand before this holy God. Not only just to stand before him, but to stay there for all of eternity. It is an impossibility. In my sinfulness, in your sinfulness, because you have sinned, you are not able to enter into heaven. I am not able to enter into heaven. And if we truly understand that, and we understand the the consequences on the flip side, if you can't enter into heaven, the Bible clearly lays out there's only one other option, and that's hell. So for a person who is living in their sin or has sinned, The consequences, the payment for sin is death. Separation from God and entrance into hell. That's where I am to be. I do not have a holy standing before God. I am unrighteous before him. And so Paul starts to talk about the righteousness of God. So what happens? God sends his son as the perfect substitute. The Holy One lives a holy and blameless life, goes through all of his life, and then voluntarily, willingly dies on the cross to pay the penalty to accept God's wrath for your sin and for mine. And as he bears bears the weight of our sins and the weight of the world's sins on that cross, God looks down. He turns from him. And in those brief moments, the pure agony, excruciation, excruciating pain, Christ takes upon himself your sin debt, my sin debt. He does that in such a way that as he died and then he was buried and he rose again, that God is able to look. God the Father is able to look and say, I accept his payment on the cross for the sins of humanity. But again, go back to what he said in in verse 16. It is only for those who believe. It's sufficient for everybody. The atonement of Jesus Christ, his payment, his covering of sins is sufficient for any and all. But it is only efficient to those who believe on Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins and accept Jesus as, as Savior. So in his death and resurrection, God has provided this free, Christ has provided this free gift of salvation to those who believe. He's laid it out there for you and I. He's given it. And he's saying, will you accept it? Will you receive it? Will you take that and make it yours? Will you repent of your sins and trust solely in Jesus Christ as your only way to be able to enter into heaven? When a person does that, for some of you, it was last week. For some of you, it was earlier this week. For some of you, it was 30 and 40 years ago. When that happened, When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you accepted that free gift of salvation, the Bible talks about your righteousness, your unrighteousness has been changed. The righteousness of God has been imputed. It has been given. It has been placed upon you so that when God the Father looks at you, he no longer sees your unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ that's why we need him. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, that's why you need Christ. Because he has provided the ability for you to righteously stand before God and enter into heaven. The righteousness of God declares, the righteous God declares them to have a righteous standing through Jesus Christ. This may seem, honestly, it may seem too good, too easy for some. You might look and say, that it's 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 too simple i've got to be able to do this and to do that and to to figure out a way to make it so that i can have have something some ownership in this that's why i truly believe if you look in the verse there's a really one word therein is the righteousness of god revealed it had to be made known to us because in and of ourselves the idea of God granting this unmerited, unearned righteousness, it goes against all of our human nature. If I want something, I have to earn it. If I need something, I have to do to get it. It goes, by, you look, look across the world. Religions are not about what Christ has done. Religions are about what I can do to attain God, to attain a righteous standing, to be able to make it to a certain level. And and Paul is saying the gospel of God is not about what I can do. It's about what Christ has done. That he has provided for me something that in my flesh, it makes no sense. And yet that's why by faith, I must trust that God has made this promise that those who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. They will be righteous. They will be declared righteous. They will be able to live righteously. And one day they will enter into my righteous presence. That's the power of the gospel. That's what we're to be about. The gospel is universal in nature and you look throughout it to the wise to the unwise to the greek to the barbarian to the jew first then also to the greek it doesn't mean it's mainly for the jew and not for the greek it's just chronologically it went into jerusalem and the jewish people first and that was paul's priority but then also to the greeks to us to gentiles the gospel is not just for a select number of people christ does not exclude his offer of salvation from anyone but sadly people exclude themselves by rejecting his gracious gift They'll put it off. They'll put it off. They'll say, I don't need it. I don't need it. Don't reject Christ's gift. And don't reject the opportunity to share Christ's gift with others. It might be that moment that God has uniquely placed you in a situation to share the truth with somebody that you normally wouldn't maybe share it with. Take the opportunity. Lastly, the gospel is life-altering. Verse 17, he says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Salvation does not simply end with faith in Jesus Christ. It, uh, okay, there we go. Salvation does not simply end with faith in Jesus. It goes on, it, it's more. Faith is the origin of our righteousness. Notice he talks about from faith to faith. It, it, it's moving forward. It's, it's the beginning to something else. So when a person gets saved, when they accept Christ, it is moving toward more faith. And as I, it's, it's directional. So faith, faith in Christ gives us the ability to live this righteous life with Christ in, in there. I can't live this righteous life and try and attain it in order to come back and try and gain this faith, this saving faith. I must first put my faith and trust and it moves toward a greater faith. In fact, he he sums it up with a quote from Habakkuk where he talks about that the just shall live by faith. Ultimately, what he's saying is it's nothing but faith that puts you in a right relationship with God. And I'm so thankful that is true because I know myself. My sinfulness would never attain the righteousness of God, it couldn't. I would be damned to hell. Because I, I can't be righteous enough. I'm so thankful that God, in His divine wisdom, sent Christ to redeem me to offer to you the gift of salvation so that you can be redeemed and have that righteous standing before God. It's not by my works, it's not by anything else that I can do. And if I truly understand that, and I look at my friends and I look at my coworkers. Well, not my co-workers, but you would look. I think most of my co-workers are saved. Um, You look at your co-workers. you, You look around the people around you in your community. And if I truly believe that about my righteous standing is necessary only through Jesus Christ, it's the only way that it's accomplished. Why am I quiet? Why am I ashamed to share the gospel of God? Why am I not... Obligated? Why do I not feel myself indebted to share with them? You know, this, this, this passage, it had a, a huge transformation in religious history. If you remember back 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther is, is wrestling through reading and he, he comes to these verses and he starts to realize, wait a second, it is not, salvation is not by the things that I'm doing in the church or the way that I'm living. Salvation is, he talks about sola fide, solely by faith. And he, he takes this moment, in his first two theses of the 95 theses that he places on the, the door of the church of the castle of Wittenberg. He, he writes about that God intended believers to seek repentance and that faith alone, not deeds, would lead to salvation and that radically sparked the Reformation. We're not Protestant, but it did radically impact the world in relationship to the Scriptures, to the Gospel, because of this passage. Because it's about the Gospel. Your life, my life, is to be about the Gospel. For many of us here, it's changed us. Now, God wants to use us as agents of change to help others see that. Maybe it's time we we rethink our personal manifestos, our personal declarations of what we are about. We're about so many things in this world. But can we look and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It brings about the righteousness of God, allowing a person to stand before, and my friends need that, my coworkers need it, and I can't be ashamed. I have to proclaim. And if you're here and you've not accepted, please, don't put it off. Accept the righteous gift of God, his righteousness, his Perfection, so that you can enter in to heaven. If you're going to write a personal manifesto today, how much of the gospel would truly be in your manifesto? Lord, help me to not just preach words. Lord, I pray that you would help me to share, to tell others to look for those opportunities, to not shirk away, to not be afraid of failure, but to just step out by faith and share the gospel. Lord, for maybe many here who are looking and maybe in the same boat as I am, we know we need to do this, but so many times we, we shrink back or we just don't make it a priority. We get too busy with other things and our life is not about your work. Lord, help us to rewrite some of our declarations. Help us to rewrite our manifestos so that they not only encapsulate you, but they encapsulate your work the ministry of the gospel.